Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for coming to the conference. My name is Gara Verma, and I'm a first year MBA at MIT Sloan, and I'm pleased to present In the Trenches, the State of Football Analytics. Joining us today are panelists Brian Burke of ESPN, Mitch Schwartz, formerly of the Chiefs, Sarah Malipai from the Baltimore Ravens, and Kevin Demoff of the Los Angeles Rams. Our discussion will be moderated by Kevin Clark of The Ringer. Please direct any, the panel will last for 45 minutes with an additional 10 minutes for Q&A, which you can submit via Twitter via the hashtag Analytics in the Trenches, as you can see up on screen. Without further ado, I'll turn things over to Kevin to, to kick things off. Thank you. Thanks, Garoff. I was watching some of the panels from the past decade here over the past couple of days, and there was a preface for everyone that said analytics are on the rise uh, in the NFL. And I remember being here in 2012, and there was one NFL person in the audience. It was Jim Caldwell, and my, my mind was blown um, that, that there was someone in the NFL actively embracing it. And I don't think we can preface it like that because analytics are no longer a novelty. They're no longer on the rise. They're here. Um, I'm pleased to have four of the smartest people in football here uh, to break this down, to tell the story, and basically to, to uh, tell the story of modern football through analytics and specifically through the trenches. Um, I want to start with you, Kevin. Uh, you just won the Super Bowl, and one of your rewards, you get a ring and you get the first question at Sloan. Um, you guys, you've talked a lot about how you guys have used analytics, GPS data. Obviously, the draft strategy is something that's different. Um, how did you guys use analytics to win the Super Bowl? Yeah, yeah appreciate it, Kevin. I, I've been coming to Sloan since 2008 and been invited to speak. And I figure at some point, the statute of limitations, if you don't win anything, they kick you off these panables because you're full of shit. So, um, you know, I, I think ultimately for us, the, you know, we are very heavy. We have been heavy on the analytics side probably yeah. over the last six, seven years, really building up through the draft and through roster construction, far more on that side, I think, than than probably on the, the actual coaching and play selection side, although our head coach is amazing. Um, but truly it's been, how do you look at your team differently? And I don't know if it's as much analytics, but how do you study the way the NFL is built? How do you take advantage or maybe some inefficiencies in the marketplace? I think one of the reasons that football analytics has always been slower to develop is in a salary cap system with shared revenue. You know, you don't have innovation. It's not as much of a need for smaller market teams. Yep. And, and so when you try to build it, you're trying to look at how you do, how do you do something that other people aren't doing that's not easily replicable on the field, right? Because all the analytics on the field, people can copy. They watch every game, they see it. So in your roster construction, you're trying to figure out how can we build a team a little bit differently to give us a chance to go compete because the league is so efficient. You know, the people are so talented throughout, you know, both on the coaching, the playing, the front office side, that any small gains you can make uh, but we try to do it more in the decision-making uh, and probably the player selection and roster composition than we do anywhere else. So, Sarah, you work for the Ravens, which has been heralded over the past five years, let's say, as a team that's all in on analytics. And I'm curious, being inside of it, what does that mean? What does a buy-in on a franchise level to football analytics mean when you're inside of it? Um, so I think one thing that everyone that we work with is really good at acknowledging is that primarily people like me were statisticians. So inherently, the way that we process data and information is very different from a coach and a scout, even when we may end up coming to the same conclusions. Um, and I feel really lucky that our scouts almost embrace that we have a different skill set and have that understanding um, instead of just shying away from it because we're not football guys. Um, and I think that that understanding really makes for open dialogue, especially when we may disagree on a player or something. Um, but I think in terms of buy-in, something that I hear kind of often outside the building is that you know analytics works in a sport like baseball because the, the people on the field, you can kind of isolate them. It doesn't work in a sport like football because it's 11 moving people together. Uh, and I think that that was always kind of weird to me. 
Because, you know, we use modeling and analytics in fields like economics and finance and healthcare. Right. Um, and those are fields with a lot more unknowns and a lot less constraints, and we still use modeling there. And what I mean by unknowns and constraints is, so in football, you're, you're constrained to 11 people on the field, and all of those people are playing one to three different positions. You know, this is your down, this is your distance, you have 15 minutes and a quarter. You're constrained in that way. And then the unknowns, when you model, they think we're lucky that those don't really have to be unknown. Mm -hmm. That's where our coaches and our scouts, they have their subject level expertise, and they come in and we say, you know, hey, we're trying to model something, or we're trying to build a new stat. These are our constraints, these are our unknowns, and this is where your input and your subject level expertise comes in. So it's not like when we build things out, you know, I have my analysis, they have their evaluation and their QC and whatnot, and it's not like they're clashing against each other. Like, they very much so know that their input is valued in our analysis. Um, so I think it just makes for buy-in pretty easy. Mitch, you basically played through a data revolution. When you think about the beginning of the last decade, there was almost no study into player evaluation on any deeper level aside from tape. By the end of your career, you had PFF, you had player tracking, you had next-gen stats. Take me through what you valued as a player and now having left the game for a year and studying it more as an evaluator and a media member, what you've come to appreciate as far as evaluating players. Yeah, I mean, I definitely cared most about stuff that affected me directly. So, you know, you show up Wednesday for game planning and they say, hey, you know, Denver's a 50% blitz team. And it's like, well, no, like Von Miller rushing isn't a blitz. Like, they're not a 50% blitz team. The five guys who were paid to rush shouldn't be counted towards a blitz. Or you face Pittsburgh and one guy's dropping, a guy's blitzing, they're only rushing four and they're an 8% blitz team. It's like, well, no, they're actually blitzing. It's just four guys rushing. So you get some stats like that, which are very, like, crude fundamental stats. And you're just like, well, that's not right. And so I tended to not look at too much from that perspective because it just you'd like to know what they're going to do all the time. If you don't have the absolutes, you can't live in a world of absolutes, but if 80% of the time the guy goes inside, well, if I know that, I'm going to start favoring that, and the 20% he goes outside, I'm going to get beat. So for me personally, I would take the onus to watch the film. The guy I'm going against, I would just kind of write down all of his moves, what he did, what he didn't do, you know, whether a guy is doing something more often, less often, what he's best at. You know, Von Miller, which you guys know well, he's an awesome player. Everyone knows the spin move. He does that once or twice a game. Once or twice a game. So if I go into the game and I try to take away just the spin move, well, he's going to blow by me 20 times on the outside. Like, you can't do that just because you watched him and your brain thought, oh, well, that's the best thing he does. I have to stop it. So kind of the fundamental charting of, of guys. And now that, you know, this past year I was out of it, and I always looked at data and stuff, but the more top-down view of what's efficient, what's not, the play-action stuff, you know, a lot of the stuff Brian does um, is really cool information. But for me on the field, it doesn't matter if I know, like, we should be running play-action instead of running the ball. I still have to execute the run block. Um, so you can only get so far into the weeds because um, you have so little control over it. But once you are able to get back, you can look at um, the efficiency stuff and see what teams should be doing, should not be doing, um, whether the team you're rooting for is, you know, a team that we deem as, you know, on the right path. As you alluded to, Brian has done a lot of research into evaluating both sides of the line, what that looks like, how teams can quantify. Brian, take us through your journey into quantifying that stuff and, and where we are now with evaluating both sides of the line. Uh, okay, so like <clears throat> the win rate stats, right, that evaluate the, uh, you know, the play in the trenches. And so, yeah, kind of a funny story how that came to be. Uh, they kept at, e at ESPN, they kept asking us for uh, separation at pass reception point, you know? And uh, they kept asking over and over. So I was like, yeah, I'm just gonna automate all this. And then I, I was like, kind of graphed it and animated, make sure it was working. And I was just, I'm, like, I'm gonna just generate the separation between every player and every other player at each, uh, you know, time, time step. And I was like, oh my gosh, these are all the blocks. So the closest play, it, it did a pretty good job just by that. And then we added in orientation, some other stuff. And we, so we, it was just great just to see who was blocking who. Mm -hmm. And then it became fairly easy to kind of take the jump from there to, okay, we, we can evaluate a block win and a block loss. It's pretty simple for, relatively simple yeah. for the passing game, for the running game. It, it took a couple extra years. Kevin, how have you 
changed as as next gen stats have come in and the GPS data has come in. I, the, the way you value the lines, I'm sure. Listen, you have, you have Aaron Donald, you have a very good offensive line. You, you guys understand how to do that stuff. But the evaluation process has changed how. Look, I think the GPS data, now that every player is chipped and you can follow through the game, it is the most objective data that exists in the NFL, right? And for, for years when we've talked about this, and whether it's pro football focus or what Brian does, you know, anybody who was trying to look at the game was charting, had human error, had right. their own biases, their own subjectivity. Now with GPS data, with you know, GCIS, you're getting away from that and you're getting computer modeling, which takes out the, well, Mitch tweets at me and says I'm a good guy, so I'm going to bump him up, you know, a little bit, which I think is inherent in just the way we all operate, you know, as human yeah. beings. And you know, so or this team, you know, look, the Ravens are one of the best run franchises in the NFL, if not one of the best. You know, well, they're very analytically sound, so I'm going to, you know, give them credit for for a little bit more, and I'm going to give, you know, the Seattle Seahawks less because I don't know what they do. Um, I think GPS is leveling the playing field, so we're all looking at it as pretty objective, and you can start to get into, you know, understanding the differences, especially as it gets to wide receiver, DB separation, offensive line, some of those things that when you're just looking at dots, is a lot easier to understand and be like, wow, this player played really well. I didn't notice it to the recognized eye. I don't know their name, but actually consistently day after day, and then ultimately, you know, I think as it translate year after year, you can track them a little bit more, whereas. You could say, okay, Van Jefferson last year had this much separation, now it's this much. He's getting better at route running, or he's getting faster or stronger, or whatever that is. I think it tells a different tale of both how players are doing, but also their progression over time. I know Mitch can tell you there's probably fear on the downside of what that looks like for players, but I think that that's you know, probably more overblown than how we would all look at it now. We were talking behind the scenes, behind the scenes Mitch had a lot of thoughts on this in particular. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's start here, Picking up, piggybacking off of what Brian said. Um, what do you think about those advanced metrics and, and sort of some of the, the problems you might have with that? Yeah, it's like the first time I looked at the ESPN data on you know, discerning offensive line play, it just seemed overly simplistic. Like at two and a half seconds, are you between your guy and the quarterback and how far away are you? And apparently that is, it is that easy. <laughs> you made it that way so you know, people could consume it. And as you said, for the most part, it correlates with a lot of other things you look at. But for me, we're being coached very different things. In Cleveland, I came up under a vertical setting offensive line coach. So vertical setting, literally I'm going straight back. So I'm gonna be closer to the quarterback at the contact point than a guy who's gonna be a wider setter. Um, so does the model take into account that? There are certain schemes where, all right, I'm, I can push the guy by at 10 yards and it looks like I'm hanging on for dear life and he's running around the pocket, but that's what's coached and it's on the quarterback to be able to step up and it's on the interior three guys to give the quarterback enough room to do that. And so the dots or how far away you are from guys might look different based on what you're being coached to do. You know, we get the simplistic stay between your man and the ball. Like, that's the coaching point for the most part. Did you do your job? And that's what we are looking at. Um, but there are different techniques. There are different ways uh, you can go about blocking a guy. And that's where it gets into, I guess, the subjectivity of it as well, is what do you like, what do you not like? You know, trying to parse out, I'm a guy who, by the numbers, is not very athletic. I work on efficiency and trying to make things look good and as easy as possible. Well, if a guy's losing or winning and it doesn't look the way you want it to, like theoretically this data can pull from that and say, all right, well, it doesn't matter how it looks or not, like this is his win rate, he's good, he's not. Um, but to me, there's always that level of like knowing what the guy's supposed to be doing, what's okay for the coaching staff, what's okay for the player. Uh, that's where it gets tricky and gets into, again, our kind of distrust of uh, data just on its own. Well, remember, we're, we're starting from you know, ground, you know, Ground zero from just, we had nothing really. Yeah. Um, we, you know, it, it, the, the, the broadcast view of the play is just a big cloud of dust, you know, to the viewer really. And I, I don't, I'm not an expert on like technique. Right? So I don't know what, what to look for. But when, the, when we got the, the tracking data, really, really changed things. So, um, you know, we had things like pressures allowed or sacks allowed. And, uh, Mitchell and Joe Thomas in Cleveland were getting killed in those stats <laughs> because the quarterback at the time was holding on to the ball way too long. So there's no kind of time element to the question. And so, or something would happen where the interior line would lose their blocks 
pressure the quarterback out of the pocket, change the geometry. Now the edge rusher is going to clean up the play, and then then the sack falls on the tackles. So when we did, I think twenty was it twenty sixteen? Joe Thomas's last year, I, I can't recall twenty seventeen, but he was like number two in pass block win rate, even though he led the league in sacks allowed. Fascinating, um, Sarah. You have three years now of intense proprietary data on the inside. Give me something going from outside, you know, the kind of analytics Twitter world um, to inside and seeing everything there is to see. Give me something that you've changed your mind about. Um, so I'll, I can answer that from both offense and defense. So I, I came from analytics Twitter directly into <laughs> a front A great office. pipeline. A great pipeline for NFL, <laughs> just tweeting. And uh, I think one of the analytics Twitter mantras is running backs don't matter. Yeah. Um, so when I came in in 2019, that was really prevalent. And I think coming in-house, especially to a team like Baltimore, um, something that I, so the, the idea behind running backs don't matter is um, running, black, running backs are replaceable because um, so much of their production is um, related to the offensive line blocking for them and um, the number of defenders in the box. So I think my perspective kind of changed on that and seeing how when an offensive line blocks for a running back, once you get to that second or that third level defender and you're one-on-one -on -one with them, are you a back that is able to either shake that tackle or if you get wrapped up um, kind of shake that guy and then create more yards. Um, I think some backs are better at that than others. And I think more recently, there's um, newer talks about the idea of a perfectly blocked run play. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I agree with the sentiment that a well-blocked run play is probably one of the more satisfying plays in football to watch. Um, but if something's not perfectly blocked and your offensive lineman has a bad block, are you a guy that has the vision to be able to change your point of attack and mm -hmm. fight for more yards. Again, I think some guys are better at that than others. And then even on a perfectly blocked run play, if it's a perfectly blocked read and you have that unblocked edge defender and your quarterback makes the handoff, you know, are you a back that's fast enough to be able to outrun that unblocked edge defender? Um, again, I think some guys are better at that than others. Um, and then on the defensive side, um, I think analytically sometimes people split out run defense and pass defense, and pass defense being pass rush and pass coverage, and then coming in-house and kind of seeing how those two kind of blend together. So it's sticking to in the trenches. Um, with the defensive line, um, the, those big boys that play in between the tackles, um, your, your noses and your three tacks. So primarily, they're, they're thought of as run stuffers. So, um, and a lot of people think you shouldn't invest in those guys because you shouldn't really invest a lot into run defense in general. Um, but I think if you think of it in terms of run defense and pass defense kind of blending together, if you have, if you have guys that play really, really stout at the line mm -hmm. and take away those interior gaps, and now you, know, you have plays that, or you have a back that's able to now move more laterally, then you have your second and your third level defenders. Now they have the time to come crashing down and make those tackles. Um, so then that actually leads to not needing as many defenders in the box. So then you're putting another guy in coverage or another guy rushing. So in that sense, investing in those guys and having those guys play really well at the line in run defense actually ends up helping mm you numbers-wise in pass coverage, um, which I thought was, I think a lot of times, um, or most of what I've learned in general that has changed now that I'm in-house is just a lot related to the run game. And to ignore Twitter? <laughs> no. Only after losses. Only after losses. That, that, that I don't yeah. really agree with. We'll I'll add, I'm a big believer in investing in defensive tackles. Like, yeah, it's great. <laughs> pass rushing. I wonder why. <laughs> Yeah, we won't get into ESPN thinks Aaron Donald can't stop the run, so. <laughs> Not what I said. <laughs> At least I don't have to bring it up. Um, we'll stick with the topic of big guys and, and get to Mitch here, because 
I, I don't want to get pulled off the stage here, but we're going to go from running backs matter to Mitch wants to talk about body blows. <laughs> um, I, you had a very nuanced view that I thought was interesting. And I think what's interesting is that the data kind of says body blows don't exist, but you've lived it. You know what that's like. Um, take me through your perspective on the running game, how much it matters in your opinion, and, and just the, the body blow phenomenon that you've, you've been around. So there's kind of the literal body blow idea, which is that you can wear a defense alignment out, and in the third and fourth quarters, he's more tired than he would be, and you gain some sort of competitive advantage by being in better peak physical shape than he is at that point. Um, that's, I think, different than the run game having importance, because the run game to me is the physical mindset, it's the competitiveness, it's the toughness that essentially football is built on, you know, in OTAs and March, or sorry, in May and in June, you can't wear pads, so you mostly throw the ball. The first time you get to pads in training camp, the first team drill you do is nine on seven. It's offensive line against defensive line, running backs, linebackers, and you just go smack each other for 10 plays in a row, and like, that's the tough thing that you do. That's how you ingrain physical toughness that you need for other things in football. And so the run game is beneficial, and coaches strive for a great run game because usually it shows that you're physical, you're tough, um, you're disciplined, and that breed, bleeds into everything else that you do. In terms of the body blows themselves, like there are I, some of my favorite blocks of all time. They're mostly run plays because mm -hmm. you get to be more physical, you get to get into guys, you know, especially in college where your teams physically are just a lot better than other teams. Like we've all felt wearing on a defensive line, them not wanting to play much anymore. They start to take on blocks a little bit easier, our job gets easier, like that's the greatest feeling. That does happen in the NFL, it doesn't happen very often, and my thing is you shouldn't use the run game to chase that feeling at the detriment of offensive success and overall success. If we're the Chiefs and we threw the ball 70% of the time the first three quarters and we're up 24 points, they probably don't want to stop the run in the fourth quarter either, you know, that's, that's a fact. Um, so the body blows thing, it's because we've felt what that great feeling feels like. Um, it's, it's a really cool thing. To me, the best way to tire out a defensive line would be to go up-tempo passing game. Sure. Rushing the passer, I think most defensive linemen would agree, is more tiring than taking on a double team for a couple seconds. So like, the best way to actually get them tired for the fourth quarter is just to go super fast and throw the ball every play. That's not feasible because you lose a lot of other things that the running game brings to you. Um, but yeah, I think there's like this, the two different elements to that, and I think they get lumped into the same idea. Um, but the traditionalist who kind of think that the toughness and the physicality are the two tenants that lead to all the success in football, which is a lot of old school coaches and, and new school coaches as well. That's why the run game is so valuable to them because that's the most like outward show of it. So I'm not a running backs don't matter person, just <laughs> disclaimer up front. I think the running game is essential. I mean, it, in, in a lot of situations you, you can't, I'm not a pass all the time person, but you know, since, since the advent of expected points added 12 years ago, 14 years ago, um, it, it was eye-opening, the, the difference in efficiencies, and including everything that can happen, penalties, sacks, all that stuff. Um, the Rams, for example, this season, their offense generated, in our, in our EPA system, 150 EPA points over the course of the season. Their run game was negative 50, so they're giving away a third of their production that they're getting out of their pass game. Now, I totally buy everything that Mitchell says. It's just a matter of degree. It's like how much, how much do we really want to sacrifice to kind of, and how much do we really need to to get that same effect on that defense that we want to have with the run game? Yeah, and that's, I mean, getting back to the, the PFF, the best block run play is more efficient than the best block pass play. I mean, that's only blocking. It's not necessarily like the best pass play. Um, but the other element is if that is the case, then the run game would be more efficient if the O-line could block well every single play. And uh, clearly that's not the case. The run game is very inefficient compared to the pass game. So the running back cleaning up for the offensive line or for you know, other people, the, the running back does have an, uh, an effect on that. So I do agree with it. And yeah, I, I know that none of that stuff's been quantified in terms of the body blows, what, what matters. There's ideas that if you go into a game, you're a little too pass heavy, the O-line is more used to going backwards. It is a different mindset to run block and to get into this different mode of aggression and physicality. And that if you're doing that for three and a half quarters and the fourth quarter comes and you need this really tough physical run and this drive, 
you know, maybe your body hasn't been primed in that specific moment to have the requisite tools to make that happen. Or, you know, some people would believe that the defense line isn't worn down enough to push them past where they want to. So I understand that it should show up in the numbers somehow, and it hasn't yet. Yeah, you've been um, looking for it. I mean, I just know what it feels like to beat the crap out of someone and like <laughs> him just do that over and over, and eventually they wilt down. And again, that's not something you should chase to the expense of the other things. But um, I'd like to think that having some good double teams on guys eventually makes it worth it. Okay. I think the interesting thing about this discussion, though, is it's, and I think it's somewhere where football analytics is in a nutshell. There's a lot of big picture, long-term, season-long, decade-long data that Brian looks at and people at ESPN and say, like, this is what is most efficient, right? Throwing the ball is more efficient than it is to run it. You can take people like Mitch who are in the game in the moment will say against this opponent, this works. And I think you, you know, I can sit there, you know, Rams Twitter, despite what you said, like, Sean abandons the run too often, right? Like, Sean's pass happy, like, we throw it too often, and, you know, third and one, we need to run him up. This is not you, this is them, right? Then we get to the Super Bowl, and people are like, I can't believe he's continuing to run the ball, it's not successful. Like, we need to throw the ball. And I think the NFL, and I, I don't, can't speak for the sports, is such an outcome-based sure. league. The people look at the outcomes rather than the process. Right, and so much of what we're doing in analytics is looking at the process, but in the moment, on a third and three, in a critical moment, you know, people, it's easy to look at the big picture, coaches and players may look at the, that moment, and that discrepancy, I think, we're still such in the infancy of trying to understand these discussions, we have never harmonized those two. Mm -hmm. And I don't know when that will happen in football overall, um, if it will happen to the same degree it has happened in other sports, because I feel there's still this, this battle more in football. And I think Sarah kind of hit it on the head. Like, even though people try to compare it to other sports, we're so far behind, I think, just in time mm -hmm. that people will spend on this, that this discussion, maybe 10 years from now, will be completely different than it is today. I want to touch on sort of the commitment to analytics in front offices right now. And Sarah, I want to start with you, because you're on the scouting side mostly in analytics. You, you do mostly college scouting. And I'm curious, when you meet with a, let's call it an old school college scout on staff, um, what are those conversations like? Where do you guys intersect? What kind of, what bridges do you the gap? Um, what, what, what does that uh, conversation look like in 2022? Um, so, I touched on this earlier that I think that the people that we work with are very good at understanding that primarily we're, we're statisticians. So that's right. the point of view that we're going to be coming from. Um, but in terms of bridging the gap, I mean, I think if I'm bringing new ideas, I have to put in the effort to also understand the football side of what is relevant to a coach, what is relevant to a scout. And with the next gen data, that's so many data points that mm -hmm. I, I mean, I can kind of just do whatever I want. I have so many ideas for analysis, but I have to be cognizant of the fact of, you know, I have my own ideas, but what in this moment is relevant to a coach and to a scout? Um, so one thing that we love to say to our big data bowl participants is, you know, you have this analysis and you're done with it and you have these takeaways. If you were to bring this to a coordinator, what would you say? How is this applicable? Um, so then, the so past big data bowls have been um, route recognition and um, expected yards in the run game and pass coverages. So if we want to formulate something from that, and so you know, let, let's say we want to look at routes versus certain coverages. Um, so just as an example, um, I use passer rating just for familiarity. So like, what's the average passer rating? <laughs> Brian's getting very angry we're, we're using passer rating. Um, I, just, I don't know if everyone's familiar with EPA. But <laughs> okay, so let's say, what's the, what's the average passer rating in, just in general in the league? Probably like around 70. Um, average passer rating against a cover three, probably also 70. Mm -hmm. Average passer rating of a four vert, probably a little higher, maybe around like in the 80s. And if you look at average passer rating of forward against a cover three look, it's like really high. It's probably 110-ish, I would say. And that's something that comes up in the data and that's super cool to see. 
But you know, if I were to go to an advanced scout, or if I were to go to a coach or a coordinator, and I would look at them and I'd say, you know, did you know that the data shows that <laughs> running four verts against the cover three is one of the most efficient plays in football? They'd look at me and be like, okay, like welcome to 2015. Like, that, that's not that's not relevant, <laughs> and that's not insightful, and that's not useful. So I think, you know, as somebody who is a presenter of information, I have to you know, take the time to learn what is actually useful and what's going to actually move the needle. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that, that's what I have to say on that. Yeah. Um, Kevin, you obviously have one of the best coaches, best young coaches in football, but best coaches in general, but he's not necessarily analytically inclined. Um, what is the communication like between the coaching staff, the analytics side, you, when it comes to those sort of data points? I think for Sean has earned the right to kind of operate how he sees fits. And I always think coaching is such a weird blend because coaches are so data oriented without knowing about it, right? Like they're breaking down on first and 10, this is the tendencies, this is how many times. Like they have all that and they inherently know that, right? So they're data processors by nature, even though they may say that they're not. And, you know, I think we will break things down and we have a whole team that gives Sean everything that he wants. How he computes that in a game plan really depends on kind of the opponent specifics. And I, you know, we were having this conversation backstage. You know, we are known for being one of the more conservative fourth down, you know, go for it, not go for it teams. Um, but I always say, like, you go back in the moment, we, that has always been the case with Sean, but yet in 20, in the playoffs in 2018, fourth and one goal against the Cowboys, he was the first coach, I think, in history to go for it on fourth and one from inside the two rather than kicking a field goal. We were up seven at the time. We wound up going up uh, 14 on the Cowboys. Instead of, he was the first coach in history to do that. Right? And so I, I think these coaches have a different feel for the game. And you ultimately, that's why you, you pay them, you, you trust them. We, you know, I think in our world, each coach uses information in a different way. Raheem Morris uses it in a different way than Brandon Staley did. Kevin O'Connell uses it in a different way than Liam Cohen. And I think, to Sarah's point, you have to adapt to your group and how they receive information. And I think people think young, oh, they're analytically inclined. Older, they're not. Like that heuristic needs to be thrown out. Right? That's just you know, antiquated in its belief. But ultimately, I think it's on your building for how useful the information is. And I think to Sarah's point, the most important thing you can do is when you use data, when you use analytics in your building, you have to have some success with it for coaches, for scouts, for GMs to want more of it, right? Like you can't just walk in and be like, why didn't you throw on, on third down? Sean will give me a long answer that like, I don't know what I'm asking, right. right? So I think you always have to be very careful in, you know, kind of the questionings. And it's even worse in this age because by the time you get, as you're on the road, you, you get home, you, you've read through everything and everybody has critiqued your play calling your season down to, you know, why didn't they do this? And football's strange because it's binary. Right. On every play, you could have done something else. And, and so people always look at that. We get back to the result-oriented world. I think you have to get away from that. And you have to give coaches the freedom to, to succeed using analytics, to fail using analytics, to succeed without it, and to fail it, and then ultimately to find their way through that. I think, yes, Sean McVay is quite conservative um, <laughs> when it comes to in-game stuff. But uh, let's give him a ton of credit. So five minutes to play with fourth and two. Fourth and one. Fourth and one. You had your timeouts. Uh, own side of the field, kind of near midfield, though. There are 40. Yeah. Own, yeah. Own 40. I think five to 10 years ago, even the most aggressive coach, that's, a, that's an automatic punt. Down four points, I think I left out. Down, down four. McVay went for it with the biggest game on the line. So, I, I mean, that's, I think that's progress. I think, um, I think our... our you know, our bar has gone up for what we consider aggressive. Um, so I think that that's part of it. It was great to see. I mean, I wasn't rooting for the Rams necessarily, but I was rooting for the fourth down. <laughs> I was rooting for the Rams. Um, <laughs> no, but like, and I think that's the, uh, when you get to the point, right? Like, into run a wide receiver reverse with our third string tight end who had been called into action as the first to hurt at the point of attack blocking. You know, it was something, but I think it's something that's true, right? Like. Even this year, and you guys would know it, the fourth down, you know, go for it rates were wildly ahead of where they were a few years ago. And I think whatever is conservative by, you know, today's standards was aggressive 
Others, but I think that's the infusion of analytics overall. It raises the bar. Five years ago, the conversation go for it, not go for it. Now the conversation seems to tilt toward are people too reckless, you know, or not, which again is a completely outcome-based, you know, process. But you know, I what I do always appreciate, and you know, Sean always impresses this upon us as a play caller is like, do I have a play that works for this situation of fourth and one and fourth and two? You know, in that case, you know, we did. Uh, Cooper made a great play. Bryson made a great block. Um, but you know, ultimately, you know, we. I was saying that's the thing about football, right? It comes down to one play wins you the Super Bowl. Going for it on fourth and one, keeping the ball, keeping that drive alive. Um, but it may have been the only time out of ten he does that all year. But that's what people remember. Yeah, Mitch, we've talked about how much more data there is on offensive line play. If you were a GM or a coach right now and you're trying to get through an offensive line, then how would you do it? How would you use analytics to improve performance with the tools you have now? I think we were talking about you know, looking at the speed of which guys move. You know snap count stuff, timing, and we've discussed depth off the ball. There's a lot of like tricks a lineman can use to his advantage to be better. You know, if there's an extra foot and a half of space between me and Von Miller before the snap, like that's a foot and a half of space less for me to get to at the contact point. Like that's to my advantage, figuring out that that's important and something for me to do. And then being able to look at GPS data to say, all right, he was, you know, with this speed he got to that spot, or maybe he's slightly laid off the ball, we can just tell him, hey, go a little bit earlier, and like now you get to the spot sooner. Um, so there's a lot of like cool things we can look towards. I, I still get a little bit skeptical. I mean, you're going to hate me for it, but just the quantifying of this is how good a guy is based just off that data. Um, my thing with PFF and with your data is essentially, okay, he's in this tier of player. Let me go watch the film and see what I see. Do I agree? Do I not? But I think it gets a little tricky when you rank guys individually and it's he's the best, he's third best, he's sixth best, um, because I still think there's a lot of subjectivity to it. Now that is going to bring in some biases that you probably don't want to see as well when, when people go back and, and look for those things. But um, I just think it's always going to be hard to quantify it and to get back to running backs. Like We're all taught what angle we're supposed to be on so the running back can be on that same angle. If the running back makes a cut too early and we're still on that angle, you know. I personally don't know, I could ask the question, I'm sure, but like, is that guy that falls off the offensive lineman that tackles the running back, do you assign that to the lineman or to the running back for making an improper cut? Or if a guy makes you know, a wrong decision and goes a different way and my guy falls off, like, who gets that blame? You know, PFF has always said that over 1,000 plays over a full season, if there's 10 or 15 wonky ones, you know, that's too small of a sample to really affect that general group that you're in. But there's just all those things that I think happen on a lot of plays. Um, that make me a little bit skeptical of saying like, okay, this quantifies exactly how good the guy is. But I think using the data to, I mean, Kevin's big thing is, you know, what's going to predict the future? How can we know like this thing is certain to help us, you know, for whatever cause we're looking at for? Um, I don't know where that's going to come from, and that's going to be the interesting thing for offensive line play because it is very technique-based as well. And so you can look at speed, you can look at positioning. Um, but using the right technique once you're in the right spot uh, is a trickier one. Well, I, I agree. I mean, <clears throat> all statistics are kind of wrong, right? <laughs> it's just a matter of are, are they useful, you know? So um, one, one advantage that we have with like the, the tracking-based metrics is they're ruthlessly objective. Like there's just, mm -hmm. there's no, um, uh, this player was an all-pro last year, so he kind of gets the benefit of the doubt on the next play. Put a gun to my head, I would say I would trust a, on a, any one single play. I would trust the human scout to, you know, correctly give give out a grade. Uh, but in aggregate, over the course of the season, um, that the, the the objectivity and the kind of just the, the adherence to a certain set of rules and that apply to every single. Every single player at right tackle, every single player at center, and so on, and nobody gets the benefit of the doubt. And, and you can put two kind of scouts or charters or graders in a room, and they're going to disagree. Um, so there, there, there really is no one correct answer. But yeah, there, there are advantages, definitely disadvantages and limitations. Um, but just like all statistics, was it Bill James who talked about like who, who would ever be able to see every single at bat? from Barry Bond's career. Like, it's humanly impossible to do that, but statistics give you a way to kind of approximate that. Um, 
And it's the same way with the tracking data. We can almost in real time grade every single block or pass rush or run stop um, yeah, for every player for every season that we have the data, you know, almost instantly. So th there are certain advantages. Um, uh, I mean, the one thing that you said specifically, once guys get a reputation in the NFL, that sticks with them. Usually it's your draft status. You know, you're a first rounder, you have this amount of talent, so you keep getting second, third, fourth chances when your on-field performance or whatever has proven that you probably shouldn't. You know, if you're the seventh round guy, you're gonna get less chances than the first round guy. So I think finding some sort of way to quantify, like, yeah, he might have had the talent back then or he had this metric that made him a first rounder then, but he hasn't shown that in three years. Maybe we take the chance on a guy who's actually showing us something and isn't just coasting by in reputation. I mean, the bitter side of me would put that into the Pro Bowl. That's a great idea. Guys get. I'm gonna look at that next week. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, all the, Kevin would probably tell you, like all, if you look at how much guys make per draft round, career longevity per draft round, like it's very correlated and to get to the fourth down stuff, like no one wants to be the guy doing the wrong thing that's not conventional wisdom. You know, it's interesting because I think about, we look at it all the time and we've been really fortunate. We have a very good D-line coach, um, we have some good players in the defensive line, but playing next to Aaron Donald is different than not playing next to Aaron Donald. And so, you know, Sebastian Joseph Day, who, who had started next to Aaron, you know, had a really good year. He gets hurt, unfortunately. Greg Gaines comes in and has another really good year. People are like, oh my God, they're both great. And like, I love both players. I'm not knocking, but they both play next to Aaron Donald. And you can look at that when we traded for Dante Fowler, who was considered a bust in Jacksonville, he comes to LA, has double digit sacks, gets $16 million goes to Atlanta, doesn't have double-digit sacks. Leonard Floyd, you know, can same concept in Chicago has come to us, played very well. You know, you wind up with everything on the field is affected by the people you play next to, how plays are called, how defense is called. I was fascinated. I was looking outside on the, on the research papers. There was one that was talking about play action and linebackers biting. And, you know, at the bottom it had Fred Warner was probably the best. Fred Warner was a really good player, someone who's played against him a lot of times. You know, is, but the part of you, and I think this gets to everything we're talking about here, are they coached differently against right. play action? Is that the way their defense sets up? Is it to Sarah's point that their run stuffers are really good in front, so he knows he has more time? Like everything is conditional in football and something else. That's where I think everything we're trying to do is getting better at understanding those interdependencies rather than trying to assign individual value. Because ultimately, what I think has happened, and I think it's really hard is the analytics, whether it's PFF, ESPN, anything else we do, we're trying to isolate individual play in a team game so that we can value that individual play so we can pay that accordingly or we can draft that accordingly. And I, I just don't know that that works you know, to, to the best of ability because you can take someone who's in, you know, if you want to sign you know, a pass rusher in our system, you have to assume that their stats and play has improved because they're seeing more one-on-ones because of Aaron Donald. It's no, and by the way, that hasn't changed over time. Alvin Harper getting signed right. as a number one receiver in Tampa Bay because he played opposite Michael Irvin, you know, that didn't work, right? And so I think we're always trying to say, are there, I think what has happened in football, people especially through analytics, are looking for the lesser known players who we can project to become good players so that we can get theoretically value that they're gonna have a greater war share than their salary. Right, like that is ultimately when you're looking for the holy grail of team building, is how do I get better players at a lower cost than they should based on their productivity? And I think everybody's trying to isolate that, but it really depends team to team. A lot of what I'm hearing about things like you play next to somebody or you know, to technique, how far off the ball. So the, the fascinating thing to me, this journey I've been on with, with analytics is that you know, it, it, to, to some level, you could really ignore all the X's and O's and the techniques and things like that and just abstract the sport to just down distance yard line time score or whatever. And you could build expected points and win probability and, and do the fourth down stuff. Um, and, and that's, I think, very helpful. And it's definitely made an impact. But then we get the tracking data and to really exploit it and gain insights, you have to really learn the sport to a deeper level. So there's this kind of convergence of you know, film Twitter and analytics Twitter, where we're going to have to become one at some point. And, um, 
And so I had to go to school. For, so we talked about pass block win rate. We did that two years before we did like run block. And part of the reason was is the running game is just so, so complicated. And they're like, hey, Brian, when, when is this going to come? And I was like, well, give me a year. I, I, I have to really study, study this stuff. Um, and it's fascinating. It's fun to do. And there's resources everywhere. But that's, that's, the fun, that's been the fun part for me the last few years is this, this kind of convergence between you got to know the X's and O's, really. So I know there's a lot of aspiring analysts out there. It's like you go to school and learn that stuff. You're going to need to. For sure. Um, I want to go do one thing before we get to questions. And that's just kind of go around the panel and, and figure out what's your holy grail of data. Because what's interesting now is that football is so young in, in its analytics journey and baseball's had it already and we kind of know what that looks like. Basketball had probably you know, a decade head start in, in front offices. And the player tracking is only three, four years old um, as far as teams getting the data and being able to build models. Is there something that's either close to being able to be quantified or maybe it's just a decade but you're trying to, you're thinking about it? I'll start with you, Sarah. Um, I guess coming from the scouting side, something that I focus a lot on is positional value in terms of roster building. Um, so what you were saying, Kevin, in terms of everyone on the field working together um, and just being cognizant of when you're in a sport that is limited by a salary cap, how do you allocate your resources efficiently? Um, and so what we've been seeing lately, so a few years ago it used to be that your left tackle would get double the amount of money than your right tackle. And I think teams like the Eagles and the Raiders have changed that. And now it's a lot closer to one-to-one. -one. And then the tackle market now very closely mirrors the edge defender market. Mm -hmm. and the same thing with the wide receiver market and the cornerback market. And I mean, who knows what that'll look like in five years. Um, so having the foresight in order to know where you allocate your draft capital and um, your contracts, um, I think, is really important. Mitch? Whatever makes me look best. Um, <laughs> no, I think, I think the cool thing is I don't have something I'm specifically looking for. I mean, if I'm representing online Twitter, it's body blows matter. But <laughs> I, just, I think it's cool that we're getting this data, and usually you're surprised by something that comes out of it, and you're just like, wow, I didn't know that. That's really cool. Like, as a career offensive lineman, knowing that, like, you should throw the ball in play action way more, like, I hate the front side of play action because I have to go run at Von Miller and then hold him and then go backwards and do all that. Like, that's a very scary play for me. I don't like that. But the data says, like, on the whole, it's really efficient and something we should do more. So it's like, huh, like, I guess that works out more often than, than it should. So finding stuff like that to kind of empower you to be like, oh, this thing is actually good for you or this thing is really beneficial towards you. I don't have, like, one thing that I'd love to see, but it's just cool that all this exists and that there is that ability. I've never felt better about a trade than trading for Vaughn Miller. The number of times Mitch has referenced Vaughn Miller <laughs> well, like, in his sleep, like <laughs> clearly, clearly, um, I would say for me, it's anything that's predictive about quarterback development. Mm -hmm. Right, our league is so predicated on quarterback play, and like you can, like this week, even talking about Kenny Pickett and hand size. Is hand size relevant? I don't think anybody actually knows. You kind of go through, but if you could start to track quarterbacks and understand what for what makes a difference for a quarterback, how you could isolate that and predict their success would change our game to me fundamentally. Um, and, you know, I think you, you know, that is ultimately because, you know, and Sarah's living through it. The, what was perceived to be the greatest advantage in the NFL and team building was a really talented quarterback on a rookie contract because mm -hmm. um, it would allow you to do. If you could figure out a way to do that over time, over and over and over again, and get that growth would change the way we all look at how we build our teams. Right. Uh, for me, I want tracking data for college, yep. even high school. So, you know, it's like, um, hey, Kevin, Aaron Donald's really good pass rusher. You're yeah. like, yeah, Brian, I know he's really good. That isn't helping me. But what if I could give you win rates for every college lineman out there yep. or pass rusher? Now that is a, that's a killer application because, you know. You, I mean, this, you can't possibly watch all that film for everybody. And you can find those diamonds in the rough at s some of those lower division schools that, that can, you can find in the later rounds. And, and I know the Rams draft a lot in the later rounds. Yeah. So I think that would be really they better. Cool. No, but, but, you know, the interesting thing about that is one of the craziest things about our game is you look at the explosion of film and data and 
draft Twitter and all yeah. of that. But the amount of picks has stayed finite. It's still yeah. 256. So 10 years ago, you didn't have all this film, you didn't have all this data. You still had 256 picks. Now you have, you still have 256 picks, but you're looking at probably double or triple the amount of players. So like that is helpful. I want to quickly get to two questions. And the first one dovetails very nicely with this. And it's, it, I'll, I'll just to you, Kevin. How do you think the use of tracking data will affect the future of the NFL combine? Do you think we may see the end of the combine, in quotation marks, altogether? I don't think you'll ever see the end of the combine, right? Because I understand people's perspective of the combine. And I'd be curious, Mitch, is like, if you're a projected top 10 pick, then probably isn't going to change it. But for the other 290 players who go to the combine, it has immense value to go demonstrate your ability. I think what we will get to at some point is some of the drills that don't make sense being replaced by drills that more replicate a game or, or help us understand. I mean, the title of our panel last year, Kevin, was the 40-yard dash doesn't matter. Yet last night in my room, I'm watching the 40-yard dash at the combine and being like, oh, that guy sucks or that guy's <laughs> great. Right? Like, we all fall into that trap. Yeah. Um, I have a question for Mitchell Schwartz. And the, the, the uh, question asker, asker apologizes for what you had to deal with in Cleveland. So we'll get that out of the way. <laughs> Um, from a player perspective, have you seen coaches use analytics in game planning more from the front of your career to the end of it? Yeah, um, I mean, Kansas City is a great place to play. Great place to play. You know, they empowered us with data, with you know, some of those things. Talk about the efficiency, especially as an offensive line. Like, hey, you know, you guys are really good at this scheme. You're not quite as good here. We're going to put an emphasis on this because we think it's important to our offense. Um, we're doing these other things really well, you know, in pass protection, you're good at normal blocks, you're good at twists and games and the quarterback doesn't get sacked, but you're not quite as good at third and seven plus when the defense knows they have to pass rush. So in those situations, whether it's a technique thing, whether it's a mindset, like we need to get better at this specific thing. So again, empowering your players with the data and showing like, these are things that are really good. These are things that aren't quite as good and we're going to put an emphasis on them. Um, that's very cool to see because it's not subjective. It's not just a frustrated O-line coach being like, you suck, you need to play better, we lost, which first four years happen a lot. <laughs> um, we haven't got, oh, we have, oh, we have the wrap up. Um, so we'll, we'll end it there. Uh, thank you guys so much for doing this. I learned a ton and uh, I, I hope our, 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 our viewers did too. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.